Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew, and the ones you were never told. I'm your host, Terry Finneman, guiding you through our own drafts of history. This episode is sponsored by the Wayne State University Department of Communication. Curious enough to question, brave enough to share it with the world. That's Warrior Strong. At the dawn of the Civil War, Northern correspondents reporting in the South took extraordinary measures to avoid detection. The first was to avoid being identified as a journalist. The second was to avoid being identified as a Northerner. In his new book titled Yankee Reporters and Southern Secrets, author Michael Fulhag explores these undercover tactics and the role of newspaper information as open-source intelligence. In the days before the FBI, the Secret Service, and the CIA, Newspapers and journalists served a critical role in gathering information that was also useful to the military in the run-up to the Civil War. Yankee Reporters and Southern Secrets reveals how members of Congress and officials of the incoming Lincoln administration used reporter-gathered intelligence about the ideas, plans, and actions of figures in the secession movement. Michael, welcome to the show. Why were you interested in examining the Civil War period, for one, and then in particular, the role of newspapers as vehicles for military intelligence during this time? Well, someone once told me that all research is autobiographical, and this is probably an example of that. So that period's been been fascinating to me since grade school. In my childhood in Missouri and Kansas, the story of the fight against slavery was a big part of my civics education. I was 10 years old when my family moved from Kansas City, Missouri to Tonganoxie, Kansas. Um, in Tongi, the border war was a huge thing. That's, and I think that was the case for all the unified school districts and you know, the public schools in Kansas. So my school would take us to see a play called The Ballad of Black Jack, which was all about bleeding Kansas. It was a really sanitized, simplified story where the abolitionist zealot John Brown was held up as a hero. The Missouri version of that play, I'm sure, would have portrayed him as a terrorist. Of course, uh, that was the prelude to the American Civil War, and I've been visiting old Civil War battlefields ever since. Well, I was a newspaper editor and reporter for a dozen years before I went into academia, and I'd seen the ways that federal officials relied on newspapers as proof that funding and other resources needed to be directed to address problems. And lots of journalism history describes the themes of newspaper content or provides case studies of coverage of an event but it often lacks explanation of the, the ways that this content is used. So I was intrigued by this question. How does news find its way into the hands of people who have the power to solve problems such as pollution, educational performance, and addiction? How does ideology spread? How do stereotypes develop over time? And to me, it's all a matter of information flow. So this book was an outgrowth of research I'm doing with a really talented group of graduate students at Wayne State University. And this research explores the question of how information flowed during the secession crisis. At first, we set out to uh, collect a sample of newspapers from across the North and the South in the run-up to the Civil War in order to uh, analyze the origin and flow of information about secession across regions. But there was so much of it that we decided to build a database of articles that's now in the thousands. Uh, So that was a natural start to categorize them according to the kind of information that they contained. And this is where the role of newspapers as vehicles for military intelligence comes in. 
We found thousands of articles that suggested military preparations, political wrangling in the slave states to create infrastructure of independent nation states, speculation about what it would take in economic terms to stand independently or in a slavery-based confederation of southern states and so on. What we found confirmed a story that George Forrester Williams told after the war. His editor at the New York Times, Henry J. Raymond, saw signs of militia organization in the South as early as the summer of 1860. He was seeing this all via uh, newspaper exchanges uh, from the from the southern states. So he went to check it out and he confirmed just that. So that's what sent me down this rabbit hole. That's great. So delving into the introduction of your book, why did the U.S. government need to rely so much on newspapers for military intelligence? Simply put, there was no intelligence community to speak of in the North at the start of the Civil War. There wasn't a Secret Service, at least officially. Uh, you sometimes heard uh, heard people use the lowercase Secret Service phrase to talk about any clandestine gathering of information, but uh, in that time, intelligence could have relied, uh, could have referred to any kind of information that anyone picked up anywhere. Now, uh, now that we have a CIA and an FBI and an NSA, which we didn't have uh, back back during the Civil War years, uh, we understand intel intelligence to mean not just information, but information that has been uh, verified and vetted. Uh, but as for a Secret Service, uh, uppercase, we didn't have one officially until after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln in 1865. So that's not to say that we didn't already have intelligence. The military has always relied on intelligence, which uh, is defined as advanced knowledge about the enemy that relied on undercover spies and uniformed scouts who gathered information via observation and surveillance but they were attached to general staffs and not organized into a single organization until the middle of the Civil War. So the first military intelligence outfit wouldn't be created until 1863. That was the Bureau of Military Information run by Colonel George Sharp. Sharp believed in getting information from every possible source, including newspapers, tapping telegraph lines, intercepting semaphore messages, as well as using spies and scout surveillance and observation. But even Sharp's bureau uh, was held back by a general, Ambrose Burnside, who didn't believe in this all-source approach to intelligence. General Joseph Hooker embraced it, nurturing it into an efficient corps that served Ulysses S. Grant well when he took over as commander of the Union forces. So you mentioned Abraham Lincoln a little bit ago. Your book focuses on the time around Lincoln's election in November 1860 to June 1861, which is when Tennessee became the final state to join the Confederacy. Why were you interested in this time frame? My broader research question at the beginning was, how did information about the secession movement flow from Abraham Lincoln's election to the presidency in November 1860 to Tennessee's secession as the 11th and final slave state to join the Confederacy in the summer of 1861? I was intrigued by questions that John Narone had raised in American journalism about how information went viral in a time that predated the rapid fire social media of our own times, namely the mid-19th century heyday of the telegraph. Thinking about the technological and craft development of journalism in the 1800s, I wanted to look at information flow about a topic in a time when the nation's communication and transportation systems were approaching maturity in the sense that they were starting to knit the entire nation together from the Atlantic to the Pacific. 
Little did I know that the confluence of that would have me looking instead at the ways they contributed to the nation falling apart. I was interested in how reporters and editors shaped coverage of labor, which was a natural outgrowth of my previous work on the prehistory of stereotypes about Mexicans and other Latinos and Latinas in in news media. Slavery was the biggest labor issue of the period, and the Civil War was the biggest story of the century. In the beginning, I was simply interested in exploring how secession information erupted at the epicenters of the secession crisis. With Robert Darton's model of the communication circuit as a guide, I built out from analysis of content to exploring the motivations and actions of journalists, some undercover, and the ways that their reports were used to guide decisions and actions. So let's talk a little bit more about the news industry. What was it like in the mid-19th century? It was still largely dominated by a partisan press model. Newspapers got their money from political supporters, so every county seat had at least one newspaper for each of the major political parties. Newspapers in this vein existed to serve the interests of party leaders and to promote political causes and ideas. Cheap daily penny press newspapers in the commercial model were limited to a few metropolises like New York and Boston, Philadelphia, uh, to an extent later in the later in the penny press period, Cincinnati, and then we we didn't really even have a, a penny press newspaper that uh, you know ran daily and uh, was cheap enough for everybody to buy their own copy until the Picayune launched in in New Orleans. And then to follow up on that, explain the significance of the rise of correspondence during this time. Well, the roving correspondent of the secession crisis and the Civil War represented the next evolutionary step from traveling correspondents whose topics included westward expansion and, of course, the bleeding Kansas struggle and travelogues about foreign places where people could only dream of going. Those predecessors gave audiences entertainment that was considered respectable because their work conveyed what was regarded as useful knowledge and useful information. Fiction and poetry were seen as wasteful and even sinful unless they provided moral instruction. They weren't considered useful and were in fact regarded as time wasters. But travelogues combined character with a narrative element and interpretation through the correspondent's point of view that did provide useful knowledge. And I think that that gave, uh, gave legitimacy to the idea of, uh, of correspondence as distinct from uh, reporters who just trucked in just the facts reporting to including interpretation. Uh, that interpretation was important because, uh, you know, for uh, in the role of the correspondent, because interpretation implies a point of view. And there you have uh, you have northerners who are looking at southerners as another and trying to deduce what their motivations were and trying to figure out whether they were a threat. We hear a lot today about self-selection of news and people only wanting to read the news that fits to their beliefs. And you also discuss how self-selection of news was very common back then, and that the South limited circulation of Northern papers with anti-slavery views. Talk more about the implications of the censorship for that time. It all began with postal censorship. Southern states began to ban what they uh, what they termed, quote, incendiary reading material, unquote, by which they meant anti-slavery and, anti- uh, and abolitionist books and periodicals after the New England abolitionists flooded the Southern mail with leaflets and pamphlets denouncing slavery. That was in the 1830s. Postmasters were ordered to remove anti-slavery material from the mail and deliver it to local authorities. Surveillance lists of addresses were developed, and that was the start of the surveillance of publications. 
By weeding out dissenting political material, pro-slavery attitudes were enabled to harden. By the time the Democrats uh, picked a presidential candidate in 1860, the slave states were an ideological hot zone where secessionism became fevered. Without unionist counterspin in the form of pro-Republican newspapers as an alternative for readers, secessionism went viral from December 1860 through the summer of 1861. You also discuss how the Confederacy could not have come into being without newspapers. I noticed this in my own research of how the press reported on Confederate First Lady Verena Davis. But tell us what makes you think this. Well, here's, uh, here's a, uh, a first presumption. Nations form around shared identity. So to, to, to split off and form a new nation, secessionists had to promote the idea that the North had become so culturally different from the South that the South could no, uh, could no longer be safe and could never expect for the rights of its citizens to be protected as the North became more radical. By more radical, they meant uh, adopting uh, the idea that was once fringe uh, and started to uh, be commonly accepted that uh, slavery was, uh, was not just uh, damaging economically, but that it was a moral and, and spiritual wrong that, that needed to be curtailed. So to be an abolitionist was as radical as a person could get in the United States immediately before the war. Abolition threatened the underpinnings of the Southern economy and Southern culture. For a nation to form around shared identity and a new ideology, it must be spread. The Southern press did just that. It carried secessionism from the epicenters of the movement in Charleston and Montgomery and New Orleans and spread it to smaller towns via exchange newspapers and mailed pamphlets. So you would get a critical mass within the within larger urban centers. And then those, uh, uh, those uh, ideas that uh, Northerners certainly viewed as radical uh, started to find their way into... Uh, newspapers that were only weeklies in, say, county seats. And that exposed uh, uh, readers in those smaller, more remote places to those ideas. And that's, uh, that is how uh, the, the uh, ideology of Southern nationalism spread. In your book, you talk about how dangerous it was for a Northern reporter to work in the South uh, due to its extensive surveillance system designed for slavery. Tell us more about that. Enough Northern correspondents used their news reports to describe secessionist activities they'd witnessed by late 1860 that those who followed them in 1861 were singled out by secessionist leaders as suspected spies. A culture of surveillance had evolved in the South as a means of keeping out abolitionist agents of the Underground Railroad who might help slaves to run away and to ensure that slaves did not plan their own escapes. Every white citizen in the South was expected by law to report fugitives and help get them back to their masters. So interrogation of any unknown slave became customary. That expanded to include interrogation of any white person who appeared to be out of place. During the secession crisis, the wrong regional dialect or a complexion that was too pale might suggest that you were a New Englander, for instance. That would get you singled out for interrogation by a vigilance committee, which was a sort of extra-legal vigilante group privileged to root out dissenters against slavery and punish them. Hotel clerks, sheriffs, train conductors, as well as postmasters were positioned to monitor the comings and goings of strangers. And vigilance committee members enforced a policy of, if you see something, say something on the general population. So... 
it was very easy for a northerner who had not left their community in uh, New York or Philadelphia or Boston or one of the, the more remote uh, and rural New England states uh, to uh, stick out in a crowd. And that would uh, lead to a visit from a vigilance committee. What they would do is they would, uh, they would ask, who are you? Where are you from? What is your business here? And if, uh, if whatever you told them didn't check out or if they decided based on that information that uh, you didn't have legitimate business uh, being in that southern town, then uh, a report would be written up. It would be taken to a justice of the peace who would hear the claim. Uh, they would decide whether there was enough for the vigilance committee to bring the person in for a trial. The vigilance committee would then go back to, uh, uh, to the suspected spy or the suspected northerner or suspected abolitionist and give them uh, 24 hours to 48 hours to come up with some respectable citizen of that community to vouch for them. If they couldn't do that, then, uh, well, they would be... Uh, they, they would be taken to that justice of the peace. He would listen to the, the evidence. The person would be given an opportunity to answer that evidence. Uh, and uh, then uh, the vigilance committee, not the justice of the peace, would decide what needed to be done with them. In the best case scenario, uh, it, it would be decided, well, OK, he's, he's all right after all. Uh, second best case was you don't belong here. We're going to get you out of here right now. So what would then happen is the, uh, the head of the vigilance committee, uh, uh, committee would, uh, get on the telegraph to someone at, uh, at another port or at the next railway station and, uh, let them know we're sending someone who is being shipped back north, uh, through your station, have someone to meet them. They would then pay their rail fare or pay their uh, their passage on a uh, on a, a mail packet or a steamship or some such, and uh, then they would be met at the dock or they'd be met at the rail station by the head of the other vigilance committee, and they would repeat this process until they had sent them either out of the state or out of the South altogether. Worst case scenario is uh, lynching. You would be uh, disappeared to uh, borrow, a, borrow a phrase from Central American Civil War history, uh, and you would, be, uh, you, you would just be killed and, and uh, the remains hidden in a swamp or dumped in a river or something like that. Oh, my goodness. That is just unbelievable to even think about happening. Um, you know, your yeah. book... Yeah, I mean... Your book does talk about how there were obviously some northern reporters who managed to get by and report across enemy lines. Tell us a little bit more about them and, and how they managed to do that. Well, the ones who succeeded uh, used a variety of tactics that would be considered ethically shady in mainstream journalism today. Uh, these tactics included secrecy, fabricated identities, deception about their employment, reliance on foreign nationality to apply neutral, and declarations of affinity for the Southern cause and slavery. Uh, there, uh, as far as getting information that they gathered back out of the South, uh, they, uh, in some cases, used some techniques that resemble modern tradecraft in the in the spy and intelligence community. 
Uh, I've read a lot about this in chapter six, about how news reporters in the, in the North mobilized into what I call an ad hoc secret service. Well, the first undercover reporter of the war was George Forrester Williams of the New York Times. And he got this assignment uh, after, uh, after Henry J. Raymond uh, spotted um, uh, indications of, uh, of militia organization in a few of the Southern newspapers that, uh, that were received at, in the Times newsroom through the Postal Service. Uh, he wasn't sure whether this was just, uh, just propaganda, whether it was just bluffing. And he wanted someone to go down and check it out. So the reason he picked George Forrester Williams was that, that first off, uh, he, he had proved himself to be a good observer and a good writer. Second, he, was a, he wasn't a, a citizen of the United States. Uh, he hadn't grown up in the, uh, in the U.S. Instead, he'd been born in Gibraltar. He had an English accent. Uh, his manners were English. Uh, his, his mode of dress was uh, remained English, and uh, Raymond thought that it would be best to uh, send someone who appeared naturally to be from outside the United States as an undercover reporter. So they devised this uh, this clever ruse. Uh, Raymond uh, uh, sent instructions to uh, someone in London to put together a, a, a new suit of clothes and uh, pack all of them into, uh, into a suitcase and ship it to Haiti. Williams, well, yeah, Williams goes down to Haiti and he, uh, he picks up his, uh, uh, his ready-made disguise kit and then he, uh, he hops on a, a ship to take him to uh, uh, Galveston, Texas. So from Galveston, he starts, uh, uh, starts just, uh, just circulating among the general population. And he announces that he's, uh, uh, he's a, a British citizen on a, on a tour of, of the American South. And uh, people in the South at least uh, among the secessionists, were eager to curry the favor of the great powers of Europe. So they, they saw an opportunity to show what they thought were all the best aspects of the South uh, and uh, uh, attempted to, to demonstrate that, no, slavery was, in fact, a humane institution and look how cultured we all are. And uh, he... Uh, he uh, managed to find his way through most of the Southern states. And he did find evidence that confirmed militia organization and uh, sent that, uh, that back up to uh, uh, Henry J. Raymond at, at the Times. What was, uh, what's tricky about uh, piecing together that story is that, that what we have is his reminiscences in a uh, uh, trade publication uh, from the 1880s called uh, uh, called the journalist, which uh, very few libraries have it. I had to uh, get it uh, on microfilm at the University of Missouri Columbia, go Mizzou. Uh, and uh, what I uh, uh, what I uh, I found uh, in that gave me enough information to run uh, run text searches uh, in in the New York Times to confirm that yeah, what what he said that he did, he had actually done, and uh, and uh, that uh, uh, articles uh, from uh, from August through uh, September of 1860, carried just the kind of information that Williams said that he had gathered uh, before the war. Another example was Frank Wood of the New York World. 
Uh, the way that he got by was by simply professing affinity for the Confederacy while he was in South Carolina. He was there in December 1860 and January and February 1861. Um, he also uh, carried a letter with him, letter of introduction from the editor of the world who uh, who professed that uh, he was in support of slavery. So, you know, that was... Uh, that was enough for for him to get by, and uh, he he wrote flattering things about the people that he observed. So by ingratiating himself, he managed to maintain his access. Um, George Salter, aka Jasper of the New York Times, concealed his identity, and he used a fly on the wall approach to reporting in Charleston and and uh, in uh, Savannah, Georgia. The guy that uh, I wrote the most about, probably, though, was Albert Dean Richardson of the New York Tribune. Uh, and he, um, he implied a, uh, or he, uh, he deployed a lot of tactics that would have made a, a modern station master proud. He lied about his identity. He assumed a cover story of a New Mexico trader who didn't even have a dog in the fight. He was able to maintain that facade because he'd actually traveled in Colorado and New Mexico and was familiar with mannerisms and regional dialect from those places. Um, that all held up until he got too cocky and he started taking imprudent risks. He had a, uh, a technique where he would, uh, he would uh, write encoded messages and then he would uh, rip those apart. And he would send each piece to a different uh, trader on Wall Street in you know, Manhattan Island in New York. And then they would relay those pieces to the Tribune where they would be pieced back together and his, uh, his managing editor would decode what he had written. So it was a really elaborate uh, kind of setup. Uh, I suspect that some of those tactics uh, he picked up from people that he knew who were uh, station masters in the Underground Railroad, but that's going to be something for a future book, Biography of Richardson. Oh, that's great. So... Going off that, what are some more examples of intelligence that these journalists were reporting in these newspapers? Well, let's see. The The first thing to remember is that that uh, today we usually talk about military intelligence, but there, there are other varieties of, of intelligence as well. So in the states that became the Confederacy, secession was first a political issue. Then it turned into a military issue. Yankee reporters covered both aspects. As the Southern states debated the secession question, Yankee reporters described the harassment and of uh, suspected Northern sympathizers who were hounded until they fled to the North. Chasing Unionists out of the South meant fewer dissenters against secession going to the ballot box in the winter and spring of, of uh, 1860 and 1861 when these states were deciding whether to secede. In Charleston, South Carolina, undercover reporters from the New York Tribune and New York Evening Post reported on harbor fortifications as they were being built to defend against Union attack. From Galveston, Texas on up through Virginia, the undercover correspondent for the New York Times, uh, George Forrester Williams, confirmed that militias were forming and drilling as early as the summer of 1860. In Charleston and Columbia, South Carolina, a reporter for the New York World uh, described the numbers, weapons, and skill level of militia troops that he observed drilling in December and January 1860, before the Confederacy even formed. He also gained access to the South Carolina legislature after it seceded and went into closed session and reported on legislation to fund a Coast Guard, Coast Defenses, firearms, cannons, and ammunition. Uh, the, 
I think this goes back to the the uh, the Chinese philosopher Sun Tzu, you know, military tactician, and uh, he he said advanced knowledge of the enemy is is one of the most important things that you can have, and that includes watching what preparations they make for for war in order to anticipate whether an attack is going to come, when it might come, and what kind of an attack it might be. Reporters at the time weren't as professionalized as they are today. So can you provide any insight into how accurate their information was for the military to even be using as open source intelligence? Well, the best evidence of that uh, probably comes from uh, records of, of the uh, the Confederate Secretary of War and the Union Secretary of War uh, from the National Archives and Records Administration. Um, one thing that I was really interested in was uh, was all right. So uh, to to raise that impertinent question, so what? So what that that uh, this information was being reported in the press? Uh, did anybody act on it? Uh, it's it's more difficult to piece together, uh, you know, the, the timeline and the decision making process of of whether a given uh, a political or or military official uh, acted on a specific piece of information. But what we do know certainly is that uh, that they followed what was going on in the press, and uh, uh, generals in both the South and the North gave uh, gave orders to their scouts to gather. Uh, as many newspapers from the other side of the lines as uh, as they possibly could. Uh, Robert E. Lee had a, a standing order to always gather the press from uh, from Philadelphia, Baltimore, uh, Washington, and uh, New York. So uh, so they were certainly using uh, using that material to piece together uh, uh, what the intentions of the enemy might be. Uh, General uh, P.G.T. Beauregard, uh, who was a, a Confederate commander, uh, his scrapbooks are actually available in the Library of Congress. And I, I looked through them. There, there are two enormous bulging scrapbooks filled with newspaper clippings and in some cases notations about, uh, uh, about uh, which information should be followed up on. So at a minimum, we can say that uh, these leaders were using uh, using that information as uh, as sources of uh, of leads that needed to be investigated. But in other cases, uh, there was uh, material from the northern press that uh, uh, revealed uh, conspiracy to. Uh, take the cannons from the Allegheny Arsenal outside of Pittsburgh and uh, ship them down to uh, Galveston, where there was no possible use for them because they didn't have the kind of emplacements that were necessary in the fort uh, to hold those guns. Uh, The conclusion among uh, leaders in Pittsburgh who noticed this going on uh, was that they were intended to be used in other southern forts during the rebellion. And uh, a telegraph from uh, a union partisan in Pittsburgh to the Secretary of War triggered a chain reaction that resulted in stopping the the, uh, the shipment of, of those guns. So uh, that's that's probably the most solid uh, uh, evidentiary chain that we have of uh, an item appearing in the press being spotted, being relayed to uh, someone who had the power to act, and then someone acting on that information. Now that you've written this historical book about how governments use press reports for intelligence, what kind of advice do you have for war reporters today who are trying to be transparent about what's happening, but also need to be careful about giving the opposition too much information? 
Generals were most nervous about information that would compromise their ability to act on initiative and capitalize on the element of surprise. It's up to civilian leaders to make the decision to go to war, but once that decision is made, they need to equip and support their military to do the job with thoroughness and honor. So I think it's still true today, as during the Civil War, that reporters ought to refrain from identifying and describing the branches, names, weaponry, force strength, positions, capabilities, and movements of military units until after the battle is complete. That's the thoroughness part. The with honor part is where journalists have a responsibility to hold the military accountable for violations of international law concerning the humane conduct of war. If innocent noncombatants and refugees were abused, that must be revealed. If resources are being squandered, that's the people's business because civilians fund war. That must be revealed. And our final question of the show is why does journalism history matter? Journalism history matters because it reveals mistakes that journalists and news organizations made in the past and how to avoid repeating them. But it also shows how innovators succeeded in solving problems that arose from new technology, news, uh, new business models, and the like. Their solutions can inspire our own here in the present. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for tuning in. An additional thanks to our sponsor, Wayne State University Department of Communication, and to Taylor and Francis, the publisher of our academic journal, Journalism History. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Finneman, signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night and good luck. Good night.